One of the things that I was able to do on this latest uh, Kairos retreat was I was able to check off uh, one of those things on my bucket list, and that was to swim with the whale shark, uh, the Butanding. And so some of you have seen this picture. I'd like to put it up. Uh, it's a picture of me swimming with a whale shark. Uh, and I asked people on social media to put funny captions of a very big me swimming with the largest fish in the world. And uh, here are some of the funnier captions. One person wrote, which one is the whale shark? Another from the perspective of the whale shark, the whale shark said, this one must have been dead for days. Look at that bloating. Another from the perspective of the whale, Stephen is not eaten because sharks prefer dark meat. Someone else wrote, Gentle Giants of the Sea. For a Finding Nemo reference, remember, Stephen, sharks are friend, not food. Sharks are friend, not food. Another caption writes, uh, from the perspective of the whale shark, Off the bucket list, swimming with a boxu and living to tell about it. One, my personal favorite, uh, Free Willy 2, The Reunion. A shark saying to the other shark, check out the pale whale I'm swimming, says the shark. A biblical reference, the caption writes, okay, I will go to Nineveh, just don't eat me. From a personal log of myself, day 58, someone writes, I have gained the whale shark's trust. They still haven't noticed I'm a human. And my favorite, whale shark's worst fear Hungry Chinese man attacks from above. <laughs> After I posted that picture and those captions were written, someone private messaged me and sent me a note and asked me, Pastor, why do you allow people to make fun of you? I wrote in reply to this inquiry, I said to this person, my friend, if you can't laugh at yourself, then there is something going on deeper with inside of you perhaps insecurities or whatnot. You see, the condition of one's heart often manifests itself in your actions. I am very secure, perhaps a bit too secure and satisfied with the way that I look. And so I don't mind if we all laugh together at my expense. A heart condition often evidences itself in action. As we come back to the study of the book of Zephaniah this morning, if you remember from our first sermon in this series, we talked about the types of people that God judges. They were specific to certain actions that they did, such, like, such as plundering, so on and so forth. But as we come to today's sermon, we come to chapter 2, and there God judges certain nations. From these nations, we can extrapolate that there is a heart attitude, a heart condition that God judges. In fact, there are four. And as we note these four heart attitudes, perhaps we can examine our own lives to see if we are guilty of possessing these attitudes of heart. Because if we leave these heart matters undealt with, they will often manifest itself in our actions. Remember, in the study of God's prophetic word, 
It is not simply knowledge, but it is to elicit in us a change of life. And if God will punish these nations for the generalization of the attitude that they have, and as the God is the God of the Old Testament and the same God of the New Testament, then we can see that how he hates these attitudes, he also dislikes it greatly in our lives, and he may punish us. And if we cultivate these attitudes or harbor these attitudes, we must be warned. So let's take a look to see what these are. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me this morning to the book of Zephaniah chapter 2 as we study verses 4 to 15, continuing our sermon series entitled, The Day of the Lord. How knowing the future tells us how to live in the present. Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 4 to 15. As you're turning to this passage in chapter 2, we begin in verse 4. Zephaniah now turns his attention from bringing God's word of judgment to the people in the nation of Judah to talk about the judgments of the nations surrounding Judah because of their idolatrous practices and their disregard for the one true God, Yahweh, and his people. And this judgment on other nations apart from Israel shows us that God is a God of all nations. And he's sovereign over all nations. And these four groups of nations mentioned here that come under the judgment of God surround Judah. Philistia to the west, Assyria to the north, Moab and Oman to the east, and Ethiopia to the south. Let's take a look this morning at the general attitude that these nations had that elicited God's judgment. Verse 4 and 5 of Zephaniah chapter 2. For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon desolate. They shall drive out Ashdod at noonday, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the sea coasts, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you, so there shall be no inhabitants." The first judgment is pronounced on the nation of Philistia. And here in verse 4 is described four of Philistia's major cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. And the Bible simply says in verse 4, they will all be destroyed. Also mentioned in this group of judgment is the Keratite people. Who are they? They are most likely the Cretans who migrated from the island of Crete in the west and settled in the coastal plains of Canaan. And there they assimilated with the Philistines. And the Bible says in verse 5, they too will be destroyed by God. None of the people of the coastal plain of Canaan would be left because they were enemies of God and his people. Now, what did they do that made them deserve such punishment apart from the worship of a false god. Perhaps verses 6 and 7 will give us a clue. Look with me. The Bible says, The seacoast shall be pastures, with shelters for shepherds and folds of flocks. The coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed their flocks there. In the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening. Note this. This is the important phrase. For the Lord their God will intervene for them and return 
their captives. The Bible tells us in verses 6 to 7 that in the destruction that God has upon these people, there will be no one left in the land. In fact, it will be so barren what was once a populated area because of God's judgment, it will be prime property for pasture land for the herding of sheep. And who would be given this land to herd the sheep? The Bible tells us it will be given to the righteous Jewish remnant, the godly Jewish remnant who survived God's judgment in the great day of the wrath. This is talking about the millennial kingdom. Those who survive the great day of the Lord will occupy the land of their enemies. And there they would make a living there. You see, for centuries, especially as recorded in the Old Testament, the Israelites were never able to completely conquer the people of the coastal plains, the Philistines. Centuries after centuries, they were not able to do so. And because they were not able to do so, perhaps the people of Philistia became very proud. They grew more confident that they could never be defeated. They elicited the attitude, number one, of self-reliance. If you were taking notes, number one, self-reliance. They're able to do everything in their own power. The people of Israel with their God, the living God, Yahweh, was never able, well, partly because of the disobedience of Israel, they were never, they were never able to overcome us. And so after years and centuries, they grew more confident and they relied on their own strength. And yet God says, verse 7, the day will come when I will intervene. You think you relying on your own strength will overcome the power of God. God says it is not so. I will help the people I love, verse 7, and the people I care for. And there, the Bible says, when the Lord intervenes, the captives will return and they will take over your land. When we rely on our own strength, we better be careful because God hates the attitude of self-reliance. In the New Testament, the Bible echoes the same theme. The Bible is very clear. Jesus says in the Gospels, abide in me and I in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The words cannot be any more clear. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There is no place in our relationship with God of self-reliance in our own attitudes. The very nature of fellowship with God means we trust in Him, we rely upon Him. And for a believer to be self-reliant is polar opposites to what God intends. A New York Times article written in October of 2004 talks about the growing cell phone codependency. And it talks about in this article how as technology increases, we are becoming more and more codependent upon our phones. And what is the problem with that? The problem with being codependent upon a phone is that when we don't have the phone anymore, we don't know how to live, right? Some of us are so in need of a phone that if we lose our phone for even one day, we freak out, how will we live, how will we go on in life? 
Imagine not having a phone, your phone, for an entire week. You say, how will I remember my own house number? How will I remember who my friends are? How will I know what is going on in the world? I don't read newspapers anymore. I don't talk to people. The problem of being so reliant upon something and when it is taken away is you come to the stark realities that you are really nothing. Or what about the fact that you have no internet? We all freak out if we don't have internet for an hour. How can we check in? How can we know what everyone else is doing around the world? Imagine not having internet for a month. Horror the thought. You'd rather be sick than not have internet for a month. At least when you're sick, you can still log on. And so when we become reliant upon those things, you say, well, pastor, when we rely on those things, we're actually humbled because we realize we can't remember all the facts. We don't know all the answers, but we can surely Google it. But students, you've had that experience where you're cramming for a paper that's due the next day and you're depending upon the internet, Googling it so that you can copy something on that paper and guess what happens when you need it? Internet dies. What will I do? You mean I've got to use my own brain? And so that sort of struggle manifests itself in the actions of how we live our life. You know, for a lot of people, we think that self-reliance is only about self. But the idea in the scriptures is about reliance on anything apart from God. And so, yes, we say we don't rely upon our own abilities, but we rely upon technology or friends or position or prestige. The Bible says if we place our trust in those things, God is displeased. There's a difference between confidence and self-reliance. We can be confident. That is a great trait to have. But being confident in the Lord who works through us to be able to accomplish all that we do. But self-reliance is something that God is very much displeased with because self-reliance takes God out of the equation. And God says in His warning to the nation of Philistia, you thought you could overcome me and my people. Verse 7, when I intervene, when I put my hand in, you will not be able to overcome me. Do you think that you're better than someone else? Remember, when God intervenes on their behalf, you will fail. It is always better to have God intervening for us in our weakness because when God intervenes on our behalf, we will always succeed. We will always overcome. Be warned if you cultivate an attitude of self-reliance. Look at verse 8, the second group of nations. I have heard the reproach of Moab and the insults of the people of Oman with which they have reproached my people and have made arrogant threats against their borders. God then turns his attention to the nations on Judah's east, specifically Moab and Ammon. Interestingly, if you know the history of the people of Moab and Ammon, they are from the descendants of Lot. And if you know your Bible, you know that Abraham and Lot were relatives. 
And therefore, the Moabites and the Ammonites are actually distant relatives of the Israelites. And yet, what are they doing? Verse 8, the Bible tells us they are criticizing and insulting God and therefore God's people. Now, imagine how difficult it is to hear criticism. No No one likes to be criticized. But imagine being criticized by a group of people or friends who are supposed to lift you up, your relatives. It would hurt even more. And the reason the Bible tells us the Moabites and the Ammonites were so confident and so arrogant to throw out insults against the living God, Yahweh, and against his people was, the Bible says, simply because they were arrogant and prideful. What were they so proud of? It's not specified here in verse 8. But if we go to the area of Moab and Ammon today, we see that there are natural borders that protect them from oppressors. It is a land that once was beautiful and fruitful. Remember, when Abraham gave Lot the choice to pick which land to pick, what did the Bible tell us? He looked and saw the east, and he saw it was overflowing with blessings. And so he picked that land. It was a land full of blessings. The Bible tells us, but they threw insults. They were not afraid. They thought that the mighty Jordan River ran between them that separated them from Israel. They were naturally fortified. They were blessed beyond measure. And there they could throw insults. You know, my friends, it's easy to insult or criticize someone when you are sure that they can do nothing in retaliation, right? And that's why there is the proliferation of cyberbullying. You can say anything you want without ramification. You can hide behind your screen knowing that someone can't reach through the screen and grab your neck. And so we say things, we criticize things which we normally would not if that person was standing in front of us. Imagine saying what you really want to say to someone who's standing right in front of you. Say it to my face. No, I won't. We only criticize and insult oftentimes when we know we're in the security of the protection of our homes or our anonymity. But you know what God says? God says, don't you think you are safe behind the protection of your own land? He says, I will come and I will destroy you. That's what he says in verse 9. Look with me. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah overrun with weeds and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. The cities of Moab and Ammon, the Bible says, will be utterly destroyed as the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were centuries before. They would be completely reduced to ruin. In fact, the Bible says this once Blessed land will be so bare, only weeds can grow there. And it will become a wasteland of salt pits where nothing can grow. And if you were to go to this area today, which is very near the modern-day Dead Sea, the land of the Ammonites and the Moabites, you will see that the Bible is true. 
It is simply desert. Only weeds, as the eye can see. Salt pits. Nothing grows there. So this prophecy is already being fulfilled, although its full fulfillment is when Jesus Christ comes back again. Look at verse 10 and 11. This they shall have, note this, for their pride. Because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome to them, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each one from his place. Indeed, all the shores of the nations. This is a repeat of the reason for God's judgment. And number two, if you're taking notes, it is because of their pride. They had an attitude of pride. And we often hear that as a running theme throughout Scripture, the issue of pride. But it is often repeated in the Scripture because it is a problem that is prevalent throughout the centuries, the pride of men and women. And the issue of the pride of one's heart often evidences itself in criticism and insults and taunts of God and even His work in His people. God says very clearly in verse 11 that in one day in the future, the people of the nations will no longer insult Him, but instead the Bible says, They will worship him, each one from his place, from all nations. They will worship him because those who were prideful in heart and rejected God and insulted God will be dealt with. And so, my friends, this truth is both a warning and an encouragement to us. It is an encouragement because we don't have to worry with men and women who are proud and and arrogant and make boasts. Because the Bible clearly says God humbles the proud. James chapter 4 verse 6. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But it is also a warning, as it is an encouragement. When you and I, even as believers, boast about what we're going to do with our own power, about what we are able to do, What is the accomplishments of our hands? What we've built? What we've accomplished in our educational attainment? Remember how he deals with the pride of Moab and Ammon. He destroys it. If you want a very clear example for what happens when a man or woman boasts about his accomplishment, look no further than King Nebuchadnezzar. When he stood beyond the great city of Babylon, and he said, all this I have created. Instantly, when the words were on his mouth, the Bible tells us, he became like an animal. God hates the attitude of pride. Why? Because we have nothing to be prideful of. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Give glory where glory is due. Give him the credit God hates the prideful. Verse 12, the third group of nations. You Ethiopians also, the Bible says, you shall be slain by my sword. The third nation judged by God is south of Judah or Israel, and that is the nation of Ethiopia. Now, this is not the modern-day Ethiopia you think of, 
But these are the people who resided in the upper Nile region, today's southern Egypt or the Sudan. Now, interestingly enough, we don't know much more than verse 12 about why they are judged. All we know is that all the nations that were judged were deserving of it and had in some way, one way or another, threatened God and his people. And so the Ethiopians had done that. The Ethiopians were, to the people of Israel, the end of the world. They were the farthest, far-reaching people known to the people of Israel. If you want to talk about the last known group of people, that would be the Ethiopians. Perhaps we can conjecture that they were judged because the Ethiopians felt they were so far away, they were outside the reach of God's power. We are so at the edge of the world. No one knows us. We fly under the radar that God cannot lay a hand on us. You know, there are a lot of people who think like that. There are a lot of people who think that they are immune from God's judgment. They are immune from God's work. They are immune from God's reach. Either because they are so far away or they've flown under the radar. They're not as bad as the worst criminals. And they simply go through life. And they look at their past life and nothing bad has happened to them. And they perhaps think, well, it's okay. God has forgotten me. I just live my life. He won't punish me. That's good. Maybe the Ethiopians were thinking like that. We weren't that bad to Judah and Israel. We're so far away. God seems to focus all of his attention right there in the land of Canaan. And perhaps they thought, we got away with it, and then there it is, one line. You Ethiopians also, I haven't forgotten you. You shall be slain by my sword. You see, it doesn't matter whether five verses condemn you, or six verses, or one verse. No one is exempted. And that's a third attitude that God doesn't like. God doesn't like it when men and women think that somehow they are exempted they're exempted from God's word. They're exempted from God's biblical principles to tell us how we are to live. That somehow, because they are simply good people and haven't caused much ruckus, that they are exempted and God will never punish them. Acts chapter 17, verse 27 says, He is not far from each of us. The nearness of God is a reminder of His goodness and grace. But it also serves as a warning to us that in his nearness, he watches us. He will not allow us to be exempted. And so if you're sitting here this morning thinking that somehow you are exempted from God's rule, because we all do, we all cherry pick the rules we want to follow and the principles that we want to follow in God's word. This applies to us. This doesn't apply to us. The pastor's message is not for me. It's for someone else. I've been a good person. I come to church every week. This is for the unbelievers. If you have that attitude of feeling as if you are exempted, be warned. The Bible tells us no one is exempted. The fourth attitude is found in verse 13 onwards. Verse 13. And he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation, as dry as the wilderness. 
The fourth nation to be punished is the nation of Assyria to the north and northeast of Judah. The Bible says, I will utterly destroy the capital city of Nineveh, God says. Now, Nineveh in the ancient Near East was known as a city that it was almost impenetrable. For 200 years, it was the premier city before Babylon rose. It was the most beautiful city, the grandest of cities. In fact, it was a city that was full of vegetation and greenery. If you read some of the ancient texts, why? It had some of the best irrigation system. And yet, it lies in ruins today. If you were to go to Nineveh today, and I hope you won't because it's in Iraq. If you look at the ancient city of Nineveh, you will find that there is nothing there. It lies in ruins, as the Word of God says. It is as dry as the wilderness. It is in the midst of a desert. In fact, the Bible continues in a description of their destruction. Verse 14. The herds shall lie down in her midst, every beast of the nation. Both the pelicans and the bitten shall lodge on the capitals of her pillars. Their voices shall ring, excuse me, their voices shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be at the threshold, for he will lay bare the cedar work. This is a picture of utter desolation, a destruction to a city that in the time of Zephaniah's writing was the greatest and grandest city in the ancient Near East. It would have been unimaginable to the readers of Zephaniah's time to see this greatest and grandest city with hundreds of thousands of people living in it so desolate and so barren that only wild animals and wild birds roam its streets. Why were they judged? Verse 15. This is the rejoicing city, note, that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it, and there is none beside me. How she has become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down. Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. Verse 15 tells us the heart condition of the Assyrians They thought they were secure. They thought that in their city, which has never been captured, no one had ever gone through the defenses of the city, they began to live a very carefree life. They rejoiced as a city, verse 15, because they dwelt so securely. They boasted that their city was like none other, 200 years, the greatest, most well-protected city in the world. And yet God says, in your security, I will destroy it. You see, the fourth attitude that God will judge is an attitude that says we are untouchable. An attitude where our security is found in everything but God. And it is in those things we find as if God cannot touch us. And we know historically that God used the Babylonians to enact his judgment on these people and utterly destroy it. In fact, the Bible says, what was once a beloved city, the people will hiss and shake their fists as a sign of contempt. There are many of us today who live with a very carefree thinking, 
thinking that we have prepared ourselves. We have redundancy plans. We have collected enough money. We have pride in our position, in our wealth, in our homes. And if we, even if we suffer a little bit of loss, we have so much money that even if we lose some money, it's okay. We can still pick ourselves up. You think that God somehow, when His punishment comes upon you, you will not be affected. We are untouchable. And yet God says of these people, be warned. Because if you have this heart condition, God may show you that you are not as safe as you think. You see, safety is found only in the Savior. Nothing else. And yes, we do make plans for our provisions. That is prudent and wise teaching from the Scriptures. But what I'm talking about is the attitude. The attitude that says it is in the man-made human institutions of this world, including what I've set up, that I find my security. And I will live life like an Epicurean. Live, eat, and be happy. Because tomorrow we die, but yet we die, hopefully, well into our old age. That's the thinking of a lot of people who feel that they are very secure, that nothing can harm them. The Bible tells us, be careful if you have this attitude. It is only in the protective care of God that we find our security. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt so securely. They said in their heart, I am it, and there's nothing beside me. Nothing can touch us. Look now. They are no more. My friends, this morning, I'd like you to examine your hearts. If you have an attitude of self-reliance, if you're prideful and arrogant, if you feel somehow you're exempted from what God has in store for you and how you should live, or you feel so secure that God cannot touch you, be careful because God punish these nations for cultivating these very ideas. Why was God so harsh in dealing with these heart attitudes? Because these heart attitudes pull dependence away from Him. They pull dependence away from Him. If you have these attitudes, you will no longer trust God as He should be trusted. We are no longer dependent upon Him. And that is dangerous. Where are these nations now? They are no longer now. They are no longer around. Only the nation of Israel is still around. But these nations are no longer here with us. So arrogant and prideful. As if God could not touch them. And God said, let me show you what I can do. In 2005, Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, gave the commencement speech at Stanford University. Steve Jobs spoke about three things, and one of them was about death. And the reason he talked about death at the commencement speech was because a year before, going to a doctor's appointment, he was told that he had pancreatic cancer, and he was only given three to six months to live. And yet, because of medical advancements, he lived seven more years. But it was during this time that he came to realization. I wish it was that he realized that he needed a savior. He remained a lifelong Buddhist. 
But he came to a realization that I think that we can learn from. During the 2000 speech, 2005 speech in Stanford, Jobs spoke of the importance of death. You say, what? Why is death important? He says these words. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. This is from Steve Jobs. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the traps of thinking you have something to lose. You're already naked. There's no reason not to follow your heart. Wise words. But even more truthful when put into the context of the Scriptures. For the believer, the Bible tells us to set our minds on things above. Think about the mortality of this life. And that puts into perspective the things which are really important. How God assesses our life is of prime importance. And how he assesses it is looking in our hearts. When God assessed the life of David, God assessed him as one who was skillful in his hands. But more than that, he said he was a man who had integrity in his heart. When we think about death and the mortality of this life and the fact that we will meet the Savior one day, yes, death, the reminder of it, is an important tool, if not the most important tool, to help us make the big choices of our lives. And if that choice is to live for Him, then God will assess it well. But if we never think about how our lives are lived through the attitudes of our heart, then guess what? We will not live it as God desires us to live it. And that's why it's important to deal with the matters of the heart. Are you prideful? Are you self-reliant? Do you feel as if you're exempted from God's principles? Do you feel as if your man-made things have brought you security and that you are untouchable? How then will you live? And it begins with the heart attitudes. As we take communion a few minutes from now, we know that communion is a reminder, a symbolic reminder of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, how he humbly gave of his life, the body broken, the blood shed. But I want you to examine your lives as the elements are being passed out. Because you cannot partake, or you should not partake, or it would be hypocritical if you partake, if you cultivated any one of these attitudes because if you have these attitudes in your heart as you take communion, communion makes no sense. It is an affront to God. Why? How can one who is self-reliant, who says, I can do it by myself, with my own two hands, with the sweat of my brow, I can do it myself, come and take communion, which is a reminder that you cannot do it by yourself. You could not even save yourself. That Jesus Christ had to die on your behalf as the only way for you 
to be able to have eternal life. Coming before the communion table is a reminder that we must throw away the attitude of self-reliance. If any of you think that you can do it by yourself, pull up your bootstraps by yourself, think again. If you cannot even save yourself, how in the world can you do things by yourself? If you come to the communion table with a heart of pride and arrogance, communion reminds us there is nothing to be prideful of. When Christ came to die on the cross, he came to save all people equally. He came to save people who are rich and poor of all ethnicities. He came to save people of all social economic levels. He came to save people of all educational attainment. And so how in the world can we think ourselves better than someone else that is the root of pride when we partake in a reminder that we are all equal in the sight of God and He saves us equally? If some of you feel as if you're entitled to some sort of exemption from God's clearly stated principles in the Scriptures and you come and take communion, it, it makes no sense because communion is a reminder that no one is exempt no one is exempt, and all must believe in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior to have eternal life. Jesus' own words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are no exceptions. Communion is a reminder that no one is accept, exempted. We all needed a Savior. And when we take communion, we are all challenged equally to live out a Christ-like life. If there's any of you who feel as if the security of your life through man-made institutions or the work of your own hands, and you feel that living carelessly is appropriate because you have set all the redundancies and safeguards, when we come to communion, we are reminded that the only sure thing, the only sure thing in this life is of our salvation in Jesus Christ, which will bring us into eternity. The surest thing in all the scriptures is the security of the believer through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible does not guarantee your prosperity health-wise or wealth-wise. The Bible does not guarantee that you will have children or that you will even be married. The Bible does not guarantee those things. The Bible guarantees that you will receive all blessing from above manifested in the life after this, that those who place their trust in Jesus Christ will receive eternal life. That great verse in John chapter 3, verse 16. That is communion. And when we come to it, how can we carry with us those selfish attitudes and say that communion meant something? Coming to partake of the elements is special. It always has been. But it is special because it pierces into our hearts and our minds and reminds us that it is with a humble spirit dependent upon the Lord that we come to Him to be reminded of Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in a time such as this, we are reminded again 
of the attitudes we harbor that do not please you. I pray for forgiveness even for myself and for each man and each woman here. Our arrogance and our pride and our self-reliance and sometimes we just feel we don't need you. I pray that you would course correct our attitudes which will evidence itself in the way we live. And I pray that whenever we forget, we look to the cross. And the cross of Christ reminds us that we cannot live like this because the cross reminds us that all pride and self-reliance must be thrown away to cling to it. Self-denial is what we need, Lord. May it be that is the prayer of many this morning. Touched by your word, challenged by your word, moved by the Spirit. May this time of communion this morning be a special time as we examine our lives before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.